Good morning. Happy Tuesday. Are you nervous? Why? Yes, sure, there's an election today, right next door. But don't worry, this is America. I'm sure it will be nice and orderly, as befits the nation often held up as a shining light of democracy. One day before the presidential election and questions loom in Harris County regarding early votes cast at drive-through polling locations. Republican plaintiffs claim the program violates the U.S. Constitution. Oh yes, I know. It is happening in the middle of a pandemic spike in almost every state in America. But don't worry. I am positive that all our American friends will work together to exercise as much caution as possible. The nation's top infectious disease specialist, who's gotten it right most of the time so far, has a rough winter forecast tonight. We could have from 300,000 to 400,000 deaths. Oh, okay. Well, fine, but democracy is always messy. As long as everyone votes peacefully and nobody gets hurt, Americans on both sides will have their voices heard and accept the result. Well, a Biden event in Austin, Texas, was cancelled on the weekend after his campaign bus was ambushed and almost run off the road by Trump supporters. Oh, well, there are always yahoos who take the law into their own hands. But don't worry. As long as the violence isn't sanctioned and the perpetrators are made an example of, there's no real reason to be concerned about more of it. You see the way our people, they, you know, they were protecting his bus yesterday because they're nice. <sighs> Fine. Yes, okay, now I'm nervous too. Americans vote today. The choices are as stark as they could possibly be. What happens if Trump somehow wins re-election? What happens if Joe Biden blows him out and he doesn't leave? What if the whole thing is too close to call? What if it gets really, really ugly? Just what is at stake tonight? And what does it mean, not just for America, but for Canada and for democracies all across the globe? Probably not much, no reason to worry, right? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. It is Election Day in the United States of America, and David Mosscroft is a writer, a political scientist, and, fittingly, the author of a book called Too Dumb for Democracy. Hello, David. Good afternoon, good evening, good election day, good future of democracy day. Well, that's my first question. Is this, because um, it's a phrase that I've heard like 50,000 times now, is democracy on the ballot tonight? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, here's the thing. Whatever you think of, of Joe Biden, uh, he is an establishment centrist Democrat who, you know, supports very plainly the the core institutions of American democracy, which isn't saying much uh, and certainly not saying enough, but Trump doesn't. And when those are your two options, then it's not even a real contest if you care about democratic institutions. I mean, Trump has 
for a long time under, been undermining those institutions. He's called into question the integrity of postal balloting, even though there's no reason to do so. He's demanding that the results be known on November 3rd, no reason to do so. He's claiming that there's voter fraud, no reason to believe there is so. So democracy's on the ballot insofar as one candidate doesn't believe in electoral democracy uh, and the other does. What do we know or think we know, I guess, about how free and fair this election will or won't be? Well, that remains to be seen. To some extent, it's, it's already clear that it has been unfair insofar as the president has been trying to stack the odds. Uh, the U.S. has a long history of gerrymandering, of trying to set districts so that uh, some voters are disenfranchised and, you know, exactly the folks you'd expect uh, when, when electoral shenanigans are, are being perpetrated. So racialized folks, poor folks, uh, so that Republicans, sometimes Democrats, but Republicans mainly, can win those districts. The long voter lineups have long been a problem. Dodgy election machines have been a problem, if you think back to Ohio in 2004, for instance. Uh, so all of that indicates a sort of pre-existing problem. And now you've got on top of that, all of that, the president undermining the process and Supreme Court rulings that are sort of mixed, some that seem to support widespread vote counting and some that seem to challenge it. And there's lots of challenges going on right now to make sure every vote is counted. Um, but states, some states, are doing their utmost to resist that. So it's it's going to be tricky on all those fronts. And then there's finally the most frightening front, perhaps, of all. There's a potential for violence. And there's a, there's a very serious concern that there could be violence. And Trump is recruiting, quote-unquote, an army to sort of monitor the elections. Never, when a politician is recruiting an army, uh, ought we to dismiss that as acceptable or just, you know, politicians being politicians, especially if it's someone like Trump. And we'll get into the potential for violence and what could happen um, after the vote in a second. But I want to touch on something you said because you mentioned that some of these things have been going on for an awfully long time. And, and what I always wonder when I look at the state of America right now is how much of this this gradual slide away from a proper democracy would we not even have noticed if Trump hadn't have set the rest of it on fire, I guess? Well, people noticed, and, and I mean, Trump has, in a sense, focused a lot of attention on it because of, of how he's expressly undermined or attempted to undermine, uh, both rhetorically and indeed, electoral institutions. But 2004 in Ohio was controversial, so the Bush-Kerry uh, campaign was controversial. Everybody remembers Bush-Gore, 2000 in which the Supreme Court handed George W. Bush the victory on a partisan divided vote, 5-4. 2000 was dodgy, but Gore walked away, just like Kerry walked away. Nixon-Kennedy was dodgy, hmm. so 1960 was dodgy. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was known as Landslide Lyndon. Uh, someone reminded me the other day because you know there's allegations of ballot box stuffing. That's just a few of the 20th century 21st century examples. There are plenty from the 19th century and the 18th century even as well. So it's not like this is a new problem for the United States. This is a very, very old problem for the United States. The big difference is, as um, a couple of political scientists, Suzanne Mettler and Robert Lieberman, argue in a book called Four Threats, the U.S. has sort of four threats that have synergized, for lack of a better word, to use a word I try not to use. <laughs> uh, they've, uh, they've compounded uh, and that includes polarization, 
a battle over who belongs, inequality, and executive aggrandizement. And all those things have come together at once. So you're stacking all of that on top of norm decline and questions of electoral integrity, which creates a sort of perfect storm. As someone who studies democracy not just in the United States, but also in Canada and elsewhere, what do you think it means for the health of democracy around the world uh, when we're asking these kind of questions about the United States of America, which is, for better or for worse, often held up as like a shining example of democracy? Well, I mean, first of all, it says the the idea that the United States is a shining beacon of freedom and an example of democracy has always been extraordinarily exaggerated. Uh, you know, as as I've said, and as as a look at the historical record very quickly reveals, the U.S. has had serious problems with their democracy for a very long time, in all kinds of different ways. Not to mention the fact that it was exclusionary from day one. It was premised on slavery, white supremacy, and patriarchy. And that the U.S. democracy didn't really consolidate until, you know, maybe the mid-20th century. And it's still exclusionary. And it's still based on white supremacy and patriarchy uh, in, a, in a lot of deeply uh, troubling, profound, and, and problematic ways. So, you know, it, it, it is a reminder that U.S. democracy isn't inherently as strong as people think. But nor is democracy... Uh, itself necessarily a sort of set it and forget it exercise. I mean, it's not as if those institutions, once they've been created, uh, will exist in perpetuity no matter what. Every generation has to sort of reaffirm, not just at the ballot box, but day to day, uh, that those are institutions that they value and that they'll protect. And if someone comes along, an elite, for instance, like Trump, a political elite that is, and tries to undermine them, and they have a partisan base, they can do that. And history sort of shows us, going back to, say, Athens, the city-state of Athens, that democracy is awfully hard to to establish, but easier to lose than you might expect. And historically, democracies haven't lasted quite as long as you might hope, and that they could be lost again. Uh, So that doesn't mean that will happen. The U.S. has had crises and snapped back from them pretty much continuously since 1789-1790. And Canada's had crises too. But it it does mean that uh, we ought to be very careful and wary when when they start to stack on top of each other. And and we ought to look very closely at what the root of those things are because they're often to be found in things like inequality and polarization that's driven by elites who have an interest in trying to uh, pull people apart in, in sort of authoritarian and counterproductive ways. So... Uh, you know, it says that we ought to, so on balance, it says that democracy is, you know, requires a sort of constant act of renewal, but it also requires the sort of material support on the ground so that there isn't so much inequality that people have a reason uh, to want to throw the whole thing in the trash. Do the rest of the world's democracies have a responsibility to try to step up uh, given the slide in the United States. I know uh, earlier in the summer, lots of people only half-heartedly joked about maybe the UN should send poll watchers. But when you do have a president talking about an army to go to the polls for him, I mean, uh, to use a phrase that many people aside from me have said, if that was happening in a third world country, you would send in help. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was one state, I can't remember who, that uh, has expressly forbid international monitors. So obviously it's on partisan minds as well, right? And, and 
I mean, here's the thing. The, the U.S., as we've established, doesn't deserve the moniker of the sort of um, leading democracy in the world. But at the same time, uh, it's going to vary state by state. That said, there are election international monitors in the U.S. already. It, it happens. And so I, I guess the question is, you know, what do you expect them to do? <laughs> yeah. Right? And, and if things go sideways, I mean, what's the world going to do about it? And I think really the question is, it, it's one thing to say the election wasn't free and fair and we have concerns here and there over, you know, this poll station or that poll station or that's this state or that state. It's another to say, what are you going to do about it? You know, it's not like the U.S. is going to allow international intervention in the election itself. It'll be up to the U.S. legal system and economic elites and, and sorry, political elites to sort that out. Now, that might break in a disconcerting way or less disconcerting way. And, and the disconcerting thing is potentially that the Trump plan, as it sort of appears to be, may be to try to win it on points at the court if he can't win it legit at the ballot box. And some people, including myself, who are paying attention to this, worry that the rushing of Amy Coney Barrett was at least in part about trying to replicate Bush v. Gore in 2000. And I'll add a quick sort of addendum to that. In 2000, in the aftermath, lots of people said, oh, this isn't a harbinger for things to come. This isn't, you know, Bush v. Gore is not uh, sort of meant to set the, a course for the future. But of course it did. And now we're staring down very real concerns about ballots not being counted. And anyone who, who paid attention in 2000 could have told you that that was a risk. The news cycle these days can be relentless. Let us help you with that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story, Canada's most interesting daily news podcast. Every day, we stop that news cycle in its tracks and examine one big story in depth, something that matters to Canadians. You can find The Big Story every morning for free at Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Find your frequency. If that happens again... Um, and the courts throw the election to Trump despite uh, presumably losing the popular vote and maybe uh, the Electoral College or, or at least putting it in dispute. What is to stop that from happening every time? I mean, you know, Kerry, uh, Kerry walked away, but will the next, will Biden, will the next president that loses this way? Yeah, I mean, Nixon walked away, Gore walked away, Kerry walked away. I mean, for a long time, there was this belief that you could push things a little bit, but but only so far, and there were lines you couldn't cross. Uh, Trump sort of came along and decided he was going to cross them all. He didn't care. And the answer is what stops the next person is, well, nothing, hmm. uh, except for forbearance, right? I mean, the, the whole, there's a great book called How Democracies Die by Ziblatt and Levitsky, and they sort of, t they talk about a bunch of stuff. But one of the things they talk about is forbearance, this idea that there are things you can do, but shouldn't do. And undermining electoral integrity is one of them, for instance. Another one would be trying to kick things to the Supreme Court because you won't accept the results and hoping to win on points with the partisan court. Now, for that to work, though, the court has to play ball. And I was on a panel recently with a historian from the University of Texas, Austin, Jeremy Surrey, and he said, you know, the court has to be extraordinarily careful because it's, it's, it requires it requires sort of popular support uh, to maintain its legitimacy, right? It, you know, the court can't defend itself. It doesn't have an army. 
So for the court to be taken seriously and for people to buy into their rulings, day-to-day folks and political elites, um, they've got to stay within certain boundaries. So it would be in the court's own interest, he sort of said, not to, to screw around when it comes to the election results. And I think that's an extraordinarily appropriate point, an important point. So it's possible that you know, the thing is, is the, the, the precedent that might get set at the court is that the court's just not going to play that game. It's also possible that Republicans will say to Trump, it's over. You know, we can't back you. And he might be abandoned by Republican leadership, especially those who might want to preserve their, own, their party beyond Trump, right? Uh, you know, if, if Republicans end up having trouble in the legislature, they might sort of look to the future and say, okay, we've got to figure out a way beyond this. I want to ask you now about a few things uh, that you'll take away from whatever we see tonight. Um, Given all of uh, the gerrymandering and the partisanship and uh, mail-in ballots, et cetera, et cetera, um, that we've seen over the past couple of months, how how reliable do you expect the polls leading up to today to be tonight? I mean, there's no reason to think that they're not accurate. I mean, even the polls in in 2016 were were pretty accurate. They gave Trump a small probability of winning, but a small probability is not zero, right? You know, if there's a one in 10 chance that something happens, uh, there's still a chance that it happens. And I think often we don't understand that small probabilities uh, sometimes do yield the results, right? That you might not expect, but are perfectly uh, possible. That said, the the Biden campaign has been much better than the Clinton campaign. The Trump campaign this time around has probably been much worse than the Trump campaign before. COVID is weighing down the president. The the Biden lead is bigger and and seems more stable, at least uh, has up to this point. And it's not just a national lead, but a swing state lead. Now those numbers might might move a little bit. You know, there's there's margins of error. Nothing's perfect, but looking at the 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 base numbers, it looks pretty good. And then looking at the number of of advance votes, which are through the roof. Someone pointed out on Twitter that you know a couple of days ago, more people had voted in the advance poll than voted in the entire 1974 election, or something like that. So there's a lot of advance voting happening. Uh, that's probably bad news for the incumbent. So there's lots of reasons to think that the polls are pretty close and that this time the probability that Trump wins is low and that it's just not going to happen. If the polls are right and Biden does win and maybe even the Democrats take the Senate, what needs to be done to strengthen democracy in America? And I'm not talking necessarily about the Democrats trying to swing things back into their favor, but... You know, for the good of all voters, what should some first steps be? Well, I mean, you know, rhetorically and symbolically, uh, elites have to go back to supporting the electoral system and postal balloting. I mean, we, it's easy to dismiss elite cues as as posturing, but they actually it, that work is important. So part of it is just that. But you know, so there's this sort of symbolic element, rhetorical element. But then there are things like the U.S. needs to undo gerrymandering uh, to the extent that it's possible. They ought to be, and this is a pipe dream, but they ought to be standardizing rules across states for elections. I mean, in the in Canada, we have Elections Canada, nonpartisan agency of the legislature who reports to the legislature, uh, who runs our elections. The U.S. doesn't have that state by state, but it creates a, a mess of a system. So they ought to be, to the extent that's possible, standardizing that system. 
there there also needs to be material redistribution. I mean, you know, part of of what allows polarization to flourish and sort of authoritarian populism to thrive is inequality. And you might not think inequality has anything to do with elections, but of course it does, both in how people view the country and view the elections, but also in in what they're susceptible to uh, in terms of of messaging, uh, in terms of um, mobilization by populists. And of course, you know, there's structural racist segregation and, and, and suppression in the electoral system that is based on, among other things, sort of the, the structural repression of racialized people. And, you know, making sure that people have health care, making sure that people have a minimum wage that's reasonable, making sure that people have a right to collectively bargain, making sure that they aren't subject to right-to-work legislation, which Biden wants to get rid of, by the way, by amending the Taft-Hartley Act. Uh, stuff like that will empower and foster inclusion, which would further uh, support electoral integrity and, and, inc- and electoral inclusion. So you, I think the the program of restoring American elections and American democracies looks broadly similar. It has both sort of, as I mentioned, rhetorical elements, but also plenty of material ones. Because if, if people aren't looking at the material circumstances, then they're missing you know most of the ballgame. What about if Trump wins, whether uh, by hook or by crook? Will there even be a 2024 presidential election if that happens? I'm only slightly exaggerating. I mean, there might be, but he he might try to be on the ballot, right? You know, the, he jokes a lot about three, four terms, but I, yeah. I, I don't find those jokes funny. I, I take them seriously. I, I, he might slink away and just sort of going, go, you know, go back to pretending to be a gilded economic elite, and that would be perfectly fine. But if he wins a second term, uh, you know, it's going to be more of the same, compounded, so even more disastrous. There'll be, I think, far more pandemic deaths than there otherwise would have been. Uh, I would imagine institutions will further corrode, and that's assuming he wins legit. If he wins in a crooked way, then I don't know. I mean, if if it comes down to a really close race, if you you know, I've asked a lot of people about this and sort of been paying attention to what people are saying, and the hope seems to be that Biden wins by a landslide. The nightmare scenario seems to be that you know either Trump or Biden win with a narrow margin. Uh, you know, in fact, Biden winning by a narrow margin is maybe the thing that frightens me the most because that's where I think you'd see a very vicious Trump doing God knows what compared to if if the inverse happened or the opposite happened, in which case Biden probably wouldn't do that. So that that's sort of what worries me. But even if Biden wins, it's going to be remarkably difficult, depending on Congress especially, to restore the, the health of American democracy and American social and political culture. If he loses and it takes another four years, I don't even know what to tell you, especially when you look at the climate crisis. We have no more time to wait on the climate crisis. We're decades behind. We don't have the time we're burning now. We certainly don't have another four years. Biden wants to go to net zero by 2050. Trump thinks climate change is clean water. Uh, it has to do with clean water, right? He, he's just completely clueless. The, the Republican climate change plan doesn't exist. It's a joke. So four more years of Trump would be deeply disastrous. But I will say this, in a close race, I, I think Biden would, if he loses, concede uh, after perhaps some legal challenges, whereas I'm not convinced Trump would. And that's that leads us to the really scary scenario, which is sort of widespread uh, resistance, uh, violence, especially from the sort of Trump brown shirt types. When you talk to people um, about what could happen after the election, 
How often does that come up and how scared are they of it? Because it's something that we've covered here uh, in the past and, you know, you almost don't want to imagine it, but it seems terrifyingly close right now. Everybody I talk to, I, I mean, I think, understands that it's a threat and that it's it's possible in a way that it wasn't even 20 years ago. Maybe not even possible even 10 years ago. There is a sort of simmering anxiety. When I talk to the optimists, they sort of either think that it won't happen or that'll be localized. That'll sort of happen here or there in a few different states and law enforcement will step up and they'll deal with it because that's what they're uh, committed to doing. That's the optimist outlook. I, I think some version of one of those is probably plausible. The, the sort of pessimist, all-out violence in the street thing, I, I'm not convinced that the numbers are high enough to produce a sort of right-wing uh, militia, brown shirt movement that becomes overwhelming. I think the numbers are just too low. And I, and I have a sense that the Republican leadership would abandon Trump at that point or some point before it. At least a critical mass of them would. But the fact that we even need to talk about it shows you how much of a, of a threat it could be. Um, and, and to circle back around is a reminder that you know American democracy was never what people imagined it to be. And no democracy is immune to breakdown like this including our own. Okay, well, I'm going to watch tonight uh, with my fingers crossed. Thank you for this, David. Me too, my pleasure. David Mosscrop with a cheery look at some of the possibilities tonight. That was The Big Story. If you would like more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. And whatever happens tonight, we will have something interesting in your feed for tomorrow. I promise no matter who wins, it'll make you feel a little better. You can find us, as always, at TheBigStoryFPN on Twitter. You can email us, TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And we're in every podcast player, Apple and Google and Stitcher and Spotify and whichever other ones Donald Trump allows to exist after he wins re-election. Oh, God. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs>